uh, the, the example that I use is like, you know, imagine the day that an Apple or Google actually productizes that where, you know, right now in your, your Google photos or whatever you're searching, like, Hey, show me, show me pictures of me and my wife on our honeymoon or, or, you know, in Italy. And it searches those pictures using computer vision. You know, once you add a, a feature like this in, then it's like, Hey, show, show me a photo of me and my wife, like on the summit of Everest. And it will show you a photo of you guys, like holding the flag up there where you got no, what, no, human being can tell that it's a fake photo you know that that once it's productized that's the level it will be hello again and welcome i'm eric jorgensen and i don't know much but i have some very smart friends if you listen to this podcast so do you this show explores technology investing and entrepreneurship so that you and the rest of humanity have a brighter more abundant future this podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in these early stage technology companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my friend Max Olson and I explore AI and computer vision. Max and I go way back. We love to get together and share what we're reading, learning, and imagining about different areas of tech. He's super fun to brainstorm with and learn from. I love these conversations. I'm excited to have you join us. In this episode, we really play with all of the applications and opportunities that Max and I are seeing in AI and computer vision. We start with what computer vision is, how it evolved, some of its applications, and we get into some interesting places like olfactory computation. That means computers can smell better than humans. It's very interesting. We talk about some scenarios where Google could thrive or die during the AI transition. And we talk about all the potential products out there, applying the new image and writing API AI tools out there. We're starting to see them. We think there's a ton of opportunity left. And I hope you pick up some of these balls and run with it. Max is, for his part, a brilliant generalist. He writes, codes, invests, he builds hardware. He's worked at startups. He knows a lot about a lot. And we have a ton of fun ranging through all these ideas. We don't talk about it much today, but Max is also the publisher of the book of Warren Buffett's shareholder letters. He's a fund manager. He's always has a ton of interesting side projects and he's been operating role at a startup his whole career. He's got a lot of experience that he brings to some of the insights that he shares and his blog and his Twitter are exceptional. Highly recommend checking them out in the links in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode, this format, this experience, please let me know in email or Twitter and I'll have Max back on again. We can talk through another area of tech. We, we brainstormed also doing space or nuclear, both really interesting kind of emerging places right now that I think would have a really interesting, similar conversation. I am a super fan of the Founders podcast. It is now my most listened to podcast. It used to be a paid podcast. When they have sponsored before, that was the story. And when David came on my podcast, that was the story. But recently, David has switched to an ad-based model. So you can search for founders in any podcast player, find the podcast with the white script on the black background, and pick an episode that sounds interesting to you. David Senra, the host, is a biography reading machine. He reads hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies from all across history. And this podcast is kind of Dan Carlin style him talking through his notes, quotes, key insights from each book. It's like having a smart, obsessive friend call you and tell you all the interesting things they learned that week from all the books and documentaries that they watched. His superpower is connecting the stories between people. It goes from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Estee Lauder to Charlie Munger. 
he's an encyclopedia of knowledge. And if you don't have time to spend 40 hours reading the last skyscraper of a book that Walter Isaacson wrote, listening to David's high quality recaps in one to two hours are the next best thing. Some of his most popular episodes of all time, Estee Lauder, a story that I did not know, but an incredible story of grit and tenacity and talent. Ed Thorpe is a great episode, one of my favorites. He is sort of the best role model of all of the hundreds of founders that David has featured, which I think is worth special note. And if you're a fan of my book, David has an episode on the Almanac of Naval Ravikant as well. Thank you very much for supporting the sponsors who make this show possible. I'm very careful to only pick sponsors I believe in, whose products I enjoy. I think you will too. If you enjoy conversations like this one you're about to hear and you want to be a part of a community who talks about stuff like this all the time, please go to ejorgensen.com, share your email. I'll keep you in the loop. There's tons of fun stuff coming. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. I'm very excited to do this on the podcast, what we do in normal life, which is like call each other and be excited about all the technological things and then like shout and wave our hands about how amazing the world is going to be in the future when we actually figure out how to like use and do all this stuff. And then like all the various ways in which one plus one equals three when cool tech stuff comes in. But since this is your first time on the podcast, which is my massive oversight, I feel like a quick intro and like your background would be helpful. So people can get get a feel for where you've been, what you've seen, what you're into. Yeah, so I work at a startup called Mashgen, and we make a visual self-checkout kiosk where you don't have to scan items barcodes one by one. You just place all your items down, you tap your phone to pay, and you go. It's that like super easy checkout, basically. And that's my day job. Uh, I have also published a book since 2012, and I run an investment fund on the side. Still do it. That investment fund's been, you've been at that for a while. What is the like focus of that? Yeah, so it's it's a long only fund, mostly public investments. I mean, that's how it started is just kind of what you would call a hedge fund, a little bit of like options hedging. And over time, I've kind of private investments have, have creeped into the, the strategy. It's mostly kind of your typical long term, you know, value investing. That's the majority of the actual position sizing. But then I also do lots of different kind of, you know, special situations, quantitative strategies, things like that. So it's a little bit, it's similar to my own style. You know, it's a little all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. That that is like less tech focused than value focused though, right? I'm sure there's some overlap. How would you classify that? Yeah. And when you say tech focus, you mean like in terms of the companies itself or? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's definitely not tech focus per se, although like similar to the private investing, you know, I think it's slowly over time gotten more and more on the more tech kind of side versus the more what you would think like of Warren Buffett style (laughs) investing where it's like not definitely (laughs) not anti-tech, right? I mean, he's invested in multiple tech companies, but it's more of like invest in things that are not going to change, you know, in 10 to 20 years, or that's the goal at least. And yeah, I, I think my style has gotten a little bit less like that over time. And I've been a little bit more willing to take on, you know, I hate the word risk, but you know, the, the uncertainty of whether something is going to play out. Yeah. Specific technology. I I like the, um, I think it's a biologism that like saying there's a tech industry is like saying there's a physics industry. Like every company interacts with technology. It's just to the extent that they 
acknowledge it and focus on it. Oh yeah, I've gotten in discussions with people in the past where it's just like, hey, that's that's not a tech company. I'm like, well, not technically how it's defined. Yeah, but it's like, it's a tech, and, you know, every company is in some way a tech company. I mean, if you operate this old industry, you know, manufacture a cabinet maker, it's like, okay, you're not a, you wouldn't go around calling yourself a tech company, but you're using technology. And in a lot of ways, you have to keep up with the latest like technology and, and how, you know, processes and how, how things are done how other competitors are doing things that might disrupt your business in some way. So, you know, it's a, if you go into business thinking that every business is a tech business, you know, I would think you'd probably be better off than assuming it's not. That'd be an interesting like gradient to look at like, what is the most, what is the range of specifically cabinet making companies? Like what is the least technical cabinet making company in the world? And what is the most technical? Like that'd be a good illustrative blog post. Probably you were, in computer vision way before it was sexy. So when did you start at Mastion? Mastion's been a computer vision company since like for, forever. Like you guys were real early to this, which I think is a probably a unique perspective on the industry and the tech. Yeah, Mastion started, it was it was first founded by my friend and a one-time housemate. And he, he's he been in computer, computer vision, like you said, for literally forever. I mean, he did computer vision at Bell Labs, Toyota Robotic, doing like vision for robotics. And when he started Mashin, it was, I think it was just him, of course, at first 2013. And it was, you know, it was tr- what, what you'd call traditional computer vision. So computer vision today is using these huge neural nets, right? And that's, that's just like a totally, it's got this very similar goals, but it's a totally different method than what they used to use. The best way I could describe it is, you know, as probably most people know, like an image is, all images can be broken down into numbers, right? And, you know, if you have an image that's sized, you know, 100 by 100 pixels, then that's 10,000 pixels. And then each of those pixels is red, green, blue, some, you know, combination of that. And so you have that image is just 30,000 numbers, right? And so traditional computer vision was more like Let's just say if you wanted to determine if something was an apple or an orange, you know, that's an easy example. It would be, you know, you're manually programming things like if statements that says like, hey, look at all of the pixels of these images. And if if on average this image has more red pixels, then it's probably past an apple, you know, past some threshold. So that's an example of traditional computer vision where you're kind of you might apply some Photoshop-esque like filters to it, you know, like turn it black and white and apply some contrast filter to it. But you're basically kind of manually thinking of like, oh, how would I, how would I break this apart and determine, you know, what's in this image? I mean, actually I should have stepped back. Like if nobody, people don't understand what computer vision is, it's, it's, is what it sounds like. It's, you know, helping computers understand what they're looking at basically. And, and so, so yeah, that's traditional computers and that's the era that kind of machine was originally conceived of, but it was at the very beginning of this huge switch over. And I think I'm not an expert on the history, but you know, it started right around kind of 2010 when these, you know, neural nets have been around for a very long time, but when deep learning really started to kind of take off and, you know, we don't need to go into the super detail that one of the biggest reasons as many people have seen is GPUs and just like how powerful they've gotten over time and using those to for compute power to like train these these networks whereas in the past you know in the 90s or the 2000s even it was just too 
computationally expensive to train these neural nets. And but anyway, starting in this like 2010-ish time frame, that's when neural nets really started to kind of take off as a tool. There was so so ahead. this approach, like the software approach, had been around, right? And it's just the the hardware caught up to make this software approach more effective. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. It was on the hardware and software side. So the concept of neural nets had been around for a long time. I don't even remember like the 60s or 70s is when they were, you know, and they were used throughout then. They just were, it was more, it was more honestly of like an academic, like theoretical thing than like practical application. But I think right around that same time, some new you know, new ways in terms of the actual software and the algorithms of doing of doing these and not just using them on GPUs, but just how how the models and the algorithms were structured, basically. And, you know, we can talk more about that later, but it's like you know, a lot of those changes are going on right now with all of these, you know, AI art models and diffusion models and such, where it's again, it's they're still in neural nets, but there are different how the neural net is structured and how data is interpreted and things like that. That's that was a little bit different. And so that kind of really started to take off during that period. And there was a, there's something called ImageNet where it's like, you know, it's, it was basically bench benchmarking how accurate image models were at recognizing images. And they're, you know, I think it's probably changed now, but in the early days, you know, it was a specifics, like this is a set of images and we're going to, you know, test all of the models on the same images and like how accurate they got. And they even tested, you know, humans like on, on that model. And, you know, even humans are, were far from a hundred percent. I don't remember the numbers, but it was like, you know, humans might, might only be, you know, like 85 to 90% in like quick identification of, of what's in the, in the images. But right around that time is when the model finally kind of beat humans. And similar to some of the other areas that that's, this is happening now, you know, that was a big threshold crossed and it kind of proved at that time that that deep learning was the way to go, basically. And from there, it just the models and the hardware scaled up and it's just gotten better ever since. So I hear sort of neural net deep learning and machine learning it's use what sounds like interchangeably. Is that reasonable or should you should we define those differently? Could you kind of like frame that out for us? Yeah, and I, I won't be the best person in the world to define them, but but you know, machine learning is is the broader like subset of all of them, you know, that's it. Machine learning kind of includes statistical analysis and stuff too. You could say machine learning is a subset of AI in general, but pretty much I think everything people do now within AI is, is considered machine learning. Within machine learning, you have, you know, neural nets and that's just the, what kind of model you're, you're, you're using to uh, you know, predict the, the, what's in the images. Deep learning is you could almost use an as analogous to neural nets, but deep learning is more of just like you know, a neural net could technically even be it's it's a stacking of of layers of neurons, and a neural net could technically only be two layers. You know, you could consider that two or three layers a neural net, but that's not really deep learning. Deep learning more refers to these bigger models with like many layers and thus many more, much more like complexity. That's that's a kind of my the way I would describe deep learning. And if you want, I can kind of describe a little bit more about like how neural nets work and, and such, but, but yeah. Yeah. It, and maybe like with that analogy, the thing that I'm left wondering is like, what is the, what is the analogy to a neuron? 
is, is that like one function and then you're layering a ton of different functions and that increases like the confidence of the total systems answer kind of yeah kind of so so a, a neuron is more let's see a neuron is, is more less like a function and more like a it is more like just like a number it's like in an equation you know your y equals mx plus b a neuron is is like a weight so in that in the your classic kind of math you know y equals mx plus b like m would be a neuron basically so if like that would be a weight and so just to kind of maybe even back up a little bit and that's kind of what in some sense all machine learning is is you know predictive statistics you know people kind of if you don't know what you know linear regression is it's just it is what i just said it's like the y equals mx plus b if you plot two points you know on a chart and draw a line between them you know that's you predicting like oh if, if anywhere else goes on that line you know that's that's the prediction right that's that's the basics of linear regression and that's as simple as you can get and it just kind of scales up in complexity from there i mean for just linear regression you know that's just one variable so if you're trying to predict you know the the price of a house right and you collect a bunch of examples of how many you know houses that have sold and how much square feet they have using square feet you know that's just one that's using one feature and you can easily just kind of plot the you know just do the math on a by hand on a piece of paper for that for something that simple plot the linear regression and then say like okay it's you know you have your average it's this average amount per square foot and therefore i'm going to predict this house is going to sell for this much now that's probably not that accurate because for the house you've got all these other factors number of bedrooms whether it has a pool or not and so if you wanted to you know you can just start adding in those features right and that gets into like you know a multivariate regression and it starts to get a little bit more complicated but still enough that you could do it easily if you wanted to in a spreadsheet right and that's that's essentially like you know these neuralettes are essentially just like scaled very scaled versions of that you know a regression is like one layer of a neural net essentially and and a neural net's like you're you continually like add layers of that regression and back to the image example actually you have you know like i said an image is represented by all these numbers and let's just say you know, one of the most simple, probably computer vision recognition problems you can think of is like, you know, what's how do how do you tell if something's a square or a circle? OK, so if you break those into numbers, what you're essentially doing is like you're feeding in those numbers on one end of the model. And on the other end, you just want it. You know, there's a binary outcome. Is this a circle or is this a square? And so you're just reducing. Let's just say, like in the example I gave, there's you're 100 by 100 pixels. That's, you know, if it's black and white, 10,000 numbers you're feeding into this function the model and it spits out one number at the end of it so it's essentially just mapping reducing those 10,000 numbers to one number in these successive layers and the way that works is like i don't <laughs> you know again this is this starts to get complicated but like each layer is like a simplified way to say it is it's like breaking it's it takes all those pixels and it's breaking it down more and more so it learns kind of like okay this is what a line is this is what a, a corner is. This is what a curve is down to the, you know, the last few layers where it's like, okay, the second to last layer might, you know, essentially say like, okay, this, this object has, looks like it has four corners. And therefore the last layer says like, if it has four corners, then it's a square. And that's, that's a simple example, but it, that scales all the way up to like, is this a dog or a cat? And, you know, and that last thing is like, is this a dog or a cat? Yeah. And, and yeah, again, it's just like mapping all of those numbers reducing it to to a few numbers and that's exactly what humans do really 
I mean, if you look at a dog or a cat, you know, it happens instantaneously in your brain, but that's essentially where you're doing it. All of this, you know, thousands and tens of millions of bits of information, it's flowing into your brain instantly. And your brain is reducing it down into like, you know, either make a decision or, or, you know, what is this thing? And we spent 20 years learning what's a dog, what's a cat. Like you treat the machines, the AIs, like kids and just like part of it is part of it is the complexity of the function, but, uh, or the network, but also part of it is just the sample size. I know there's a huge part of the boom in AI and, and computer vision has been benefited by just like the scale of things that we have added online, made available, made accessible, and like fed these things so that they can, is it, I mean, it's safe to say like they are now writing their own rules, right? Like you can tell the function to teach itself how to distinguish a cat from a dog. We don't have to write, you know, pointy ears, size, weight, colors. Like those are things that are kind of emergent from, hey, figure this out. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of, and again, back to that's that's one of the differences between traditional computer vision and, and now using neural nets is when you're training those models, those huge neural nets, you know, and something like what I was talking about, like square or circle, that wouldn't be that because it's not very complex that wouldn't, that neural net would not be needed, need to be very big. You know, it would only be probably a few layers, only, you know, a handful of neurons per layer, and that's good enough. But the bigger the problem, you know, the more the complexity, the more data you need, as you said, and the bigger the models. And yes, it will, in this training process, when it's kind of each of these neurons is, it's like going back and forth, like learning, basically, it's, it's almost kind of like if you are familiar with the, the concept of a fitness landscape where it's like the height on the landscape is is how good the solution is like it's trying it's like traversing that landscape trying to find the best you know weights for that model so that when it's used you know it finds the best solution so in traversing that it is quote unquote learning what these things are like you said what's what does a leg look like what is a it doesn't know what you know a leg is per se but it it kind of essentially learns those things over time Super interesting. And and of course, like, I think you get this from the bottomless folks. They, they, they have the company that's like a Wi-Fi enabled scale. And it's just like, as a general rule, the more things you can make legible to computers, the more that AI can do for us and the more that can be done by like really high leverage automated, like crazy machines. So I feel like the computer vision in general, the, the companies that I know of in the computer vision space, and you might know more, are much more like they're very specific. They need to train to a specific data set. Like you're like, we are going to learn all of the items in this store at Mastion, the items for sale, and we're going to be able to recognize all of them. Self-driving is kind of like recognizing cones and people and objects. That's maybe the most general. I know, or, you know. That one's that one's pretty general. Yeah, yeah. extremely general. And our mutual friends at Density are very like, you know, recognize a human in a space. It's, so these, these are kind of like getting verticalized, but it seems like they're going to get more and more general or like cross boundaries more and more maybe. Yeah, I mean, with these bigger, these much, much bigger models that are coming out, you know, they are much more sophisticated, they can deal with much more, you know, complex understandings of what of what is in the images. And so with those, I think, I think you're right that it will be less verticalized. But I still think in the actual like industry, industrial applications of that, whether it's mashing for recognizing, you know, things for checkout or density or whatever, I think those you'll still get companies that are in those vertical spaces, but less because of the model and, you know, the, the, how detailed you know, they need to know the model and more just because of the actual application of it is difficult and 
yeah, you just it's not like, you know, Mashin is not competing against OpenAI. Let's just say, you know, OpenAI might be able to very easily <laughs> you know, develop a model that can recognize the same types of items that Mashin can. But that doesn't mean that they're going to all of a sudden, you know, if they wanted to enter the self-checkout business, that they're going to be very good because it's just it requires a lot of customer knowledge, user experience knowledge, all that kind of thing that it's not, you know, that's that's the model basically is a super important part but it's not everything you know it's it's not the biggest part even but yeah it is it is a super important key and there are some there's definitely a lot of data network effects like if you if you've collected data over time and you keep collecting it you know that's for sure in the business sense you know a barrier to entry and if you're a startup or whatever even if you're one of the bigger companies it's not as easy to just to come in and you know snap your fingers and and drum up the data with sufficient amount of resources and money you probably can but it, it's it's some level of barrier. Yeah, especially in the, I think, like places where the data is protected, right? Like it's just expensive to collect self-driving data. So I know people talk about that as a, a moat that Tesla has. It's just like recording a lot more road hours than than others are able to get in. Or where data is like the HIPAA compliance data, right? Like x-ray screenings, it's difficult to get huge sample sizes. But there are AI models that can train on x-ray scans and be like, oh, that's that's a dangerous thing. That's this, that's this. If people train for years to recognize that kind of stuff. I was starting to think as you were talking of like, what are the jobs that humans do that's basically like taking in visual information and outputting a decision? It's like, that's security guards, that's radiologists, that's drivers. A lot of, a lot of things in manufacturing, the people there in, in, in manufacturing, even if they're using a lot of automation and robots and whatever, uh, the people there, it's a lot of visual like, whether it's monitoring the robots or monitoring the quality of something, you know, something at different steps of the way, it's like, hey, I'm just going to visually inspect this. So there's a lot of a, a lot of that in there, and that was a, a path that Mashin once once looked into. So interesting. Yeah, I don't. I bet people have used Mashin and not even realized it. Like it's in a ton of stadiums, airports, the other well, commercial sort of like kitchens and cafeterias as well, right? What's which is the most common of your installs? It's the most common now is, is convenience stores. So yeah, oh. I, I should have said too that it's the machine is not. I say self checkout, and that's what it is. But it's it's made specifically for small small format stores. And so exactly like you said, you know, convenience stores, airports, the kind of sports venues like food and drink venues at at sports stadiums and arenas, cafeterias in schools, businesses, hospitals, things like that. Basically anywhere where you'd go where you don't need a shopping cart, where you're like the extent of the items you're going to get, like you can carry with your two arms. So that's a good, good way to say it. Oh, okay. All right, cool. Let's sort of examine the like transition between the, maybe how computer vision is feeding into this AI. Like I, I feel like AI is having a moment this year, even though I'm sure there's plenty of people who would be saying like, yeah, it's been coming for 10 years. Like watch, you know, the develop, the development of the chess playing things and the you know, five years ago, everyone was talking about how like the ultimate is like the centaur, the like human plus AI combination. And that's kind of where we are with like the writing stuff right now. Like Nathan Bashaw's new product Lex is kind of like AI outputting art or language is like cool, but not sufficient without a human sort of head at the moment. Though it'll be maybe interesting to explore how that changes. I know both of us have played with kind of the text to image and just like the reverse of the computer vision stuff you've been working on. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of, I mean, it's, it's more complicated than that. And there's a lot of changes in the models, but that's almost kind of what it is. Like I said, it's like, if, if a neural net understands how to translate the numbers in an image to like, is this a dog or a cat, then 
it's essentially this is essentially just reversing it and being like, okay, well, what does a dog look like? It's obviously a lot more complicated than just reversing it. Um, and these new, you know, new changes in the algorithms, like this new way that the, all these text image models use this thing called is called diffusion. And uh, that's 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 literally that's even a little bit over my head in terms of like fully understanding exactly what it does. But but it's this again just kind of goes to show you that there can be innovations in these models, and that's hence the the changes and improvements over time. I think there's hardware improvements as well. It's like these, particularly NVIDIA GPUs have just gotten better, more built specifically for deep learning and stuff. So that has improved over time. The scale of the models has like drastically gone up. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's like, you know, they've done studies about model sizes and, you know, it follows, it's basically like the Moore's law equivalent. It's a lot faster than Moore's law, but it's, it's like the size of the models are just on this like, you know, crazy curve upward. And, and yeah, it's like for the most part, uh, to scale the models that big, you need more data and you need, you need the, the equivalent scaling of, of the data. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy how, how fast it's making progress. And it's a little bit of the, you know, you get all of these models coming out at the same time. Like I'm sure listeners have heard of the, that, you know, these text to, to art and image models that are out there like Dolly two. Midjourney, Stable Diffusion is the open source one. And all of these have come out relatively the same time, or at least that's the way it feels, right? I mean, of course, the researchers have worked on it or similar problems for years. But I think one of the reasons why it's these all seem to come out at the same time is these changes, these underlying kind of improvements in hardware and such. But it's more than that. I think it, part of it is the kind of four minute mile thing where it's like once it's done, people know that it can be done. And so like they're, they're working, they work more to do it. The others is that, you know, a lot of the stuff, even if the model itself is not open source, like the Dolly 2 example, you know, they'll come out with a paper or, or even just like a post on it, kind of roughly how they did it. And their, their model is based off of papers that people have come out with, you know, multiple years ago, potentially. And so if they point to those papers, then the other researchers can kind of figure out basically how they did it. They can try to collect some of that data themselves and then they build their own models so it's it's crazy and then now that you've got the open source thing people are just like have taken the stable diffusion model and just totally run away with it and we've already seen you know in a matter of a couple months such like <laughs> you've probably seen some of them you know the crazy stuff they're coming out with and i you know can't even imagine in a few years from now yeah i think that's it's also really interesting to so seeing the the specific ones come out right like the the visuals i've seen friends who are like Nat Eliason was talking about his, he's like all of his blog posts are now illustrated by he doesn't go like searching for stock images anymore he just like drops a prompt into I don't remember which one he uses mid-journey maybe and uses it he's basically like hired an AI as his illustrator in the last month so I think it's interesting to think about the specific jobs that AI is getting like hired to do by people right now I saw I think it was Ali Abdal got access to Nathan to, to Lex Nathan's product and started he used it to write a whole tweet thread of like productivity hacks and tweeted it and it went viral. And then like two days later, he's like, I have a secret that was written by an AI. Like it's like ghost writing or collaborative writing and illustration. That, that's what Lex says then it's like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, a, a text model kind of applied to AI, like assistant, like it's trying to help you write. It's Is basically, that? so imagine Google docs. It, it's like a kind of a cleaner, tidier, more designy form of Google docs. And you, you're writing a blog post and the function that the AI plays is basically if you get stuck, you just type like plus, plus, plus and tab and it will populate the next three sentences 
from GPT-3, I think is the, the model they use based on what's already there. And you don't have to use it. It might not be factually correct, but it is like the AI prompt. And it just has a way of sort of like, you can agree with it. You can disagree with it. You can edit it. You can, it, it just like keeps your momentum and juices flowing as a, as a writer. I think it's like really interesting. You can also do the same thing for counter arguments instead of like, Hey, continue this document. It can be like, come up with counterpoints. There's a function where it can create titles based on the body of the text. So it'll brainstorm like 10 titles for you, which is a great, I mean, it's, it's hard to like sort of get a variety and novelty yourself when you're just brainstorming topics. That's like a high energy task. So I think it's really cool to just see that augmented, you know, it's, it's the centaur like kind of uh, approach to it. And I think it's, you know, it's not quite generate a perfect clean document as AI, but it, being an input to a writer's process is an important function and a really helpful tool, honestly. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, maybe eventually it will be, you know, potentially be able to spit out this perfect document, but like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't need to, I mean, going back to like, you know, just Microsoft word decades ago, like that had a thesaurus, right. And it's like, it's just like that extrapolated, right. I mean, if you weren't, if you were like, Hey, I don't want to use this word here. I want to use like a better sounding word. You look it up in the thesaurus and you change the word, right? And this is just like a super advanced <laughs> version of that. It's like, how do I reword this sentence even to just like this kind of sounds off or or whatever? I mean, I you know find find it a better way to say this or a more succinct way to to say what I'm trying to say because it's a little verbose or whatever. Yeah, I th it's funny. The, the combination of these two is funny because when you look at a bunch of stuff that like Mid Journey or Dolly Two has generated, the only thing that's like. The, the two things that are terrible are one faces and two text. Like it, it, you could say like generate a Snickers bar and it would look pretty good, but it would say like Skinner's skunk, skunk, skunkly, you know, like not even words or letters, but as a function, a pure functioning writing device separately, it's really good. So I think seeing these things sort of like come together over time will be really interesting as they like, we take the best of each thing and combine them could be different models too it's like it could be you know a lot of the the text models like are using a large a language model like gpt3 to you know as as the basis and you can kind of the good thing great thing about gpt is like if you're using their api you can kind of build off of that and that's honestly i didn't mention it before but one of the great things about neural nets in general just like other kinds of programming you can build off of it so it's once the you know GPT was crazy. It's like, I think it cost them, you know, the estimate was like, you know, 12, $15 million to train that model, you know, off of Microsoft supercomputer with, you know, 10,000 GPUs. And, but you're not, if you want to augment that, you don't have to retrain that model. It's like a simple way to say it is that you can kind of, you have this enormous model and GPTs is 175 billion parameters or like weights and neurons, but instead of retraining it, you're just kind of like adding the few last, you're, you're adjusting the few last layers, which doesn't require, you know, nearly, a, you know, or is a magnitude, much less computing power to do. So, so that's like, that's a huge benefit to, to all these models. And you haven't really seen that happen. That's, you know, that's probably what these you know, companies like Lex and, and then the other writing companies are doing. They use GPT as a base, as this kind of foundation, and they're, they're adding a little bit you know, of, of kind of levels on top of that to, to specialize it a little bit in, in what they're doing. You see a lot of these kind of conversational slash like assistant models that are, are probably doing the same. And we haven't seen that much happen with, with the text to image models, but I think you'll start seeing that really quickly. There's, there's already been some 
papers and some experiments out with like stable diffusion on doing that. Like if, if I say, you know, if I go into my Dolly prompt and I say like, you know, show me Eric Jorgensen, you know, riding a horse on Mars, <laughs> it's like, it doesn't know who Eric Jorgensen in is, but there's been some experience where it's like already, you know, I could spin up my own server and run the stable diffusion model and, and I could add, you don't even need that much. It's crazy. It's like, you can, I could add, you know, five pictures of Eric Jorgensen and just say like, Hey, this is Eric. And it learns like what you look like. And then when I type that prompt in, it's going to show you, you know, and it's going to be really realistic. And we'll start to see that like productize probably really soon. Yeah, that's I don't I won't say too much about it. I have seen specific startups that are doing some really cool stuff with that early on that they can like motion capture you and then make you do anything or let you do anything, which is going to get weird quick. And I'm going to stop sharing my photo with you and everyone else. <laughs> So you do some weird. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's there's the. I mean, that's that kind of. I don't. I don't like talking too much about the negative side to it because yeah. I feel like that gets the, the plenty of air. That's not what we do here. Yeah, it's just it's just more fun talking about the positive side. But yeah, it'll it, there'll be a lot of crazy implications and. But people over time, just like anything, they'll get used to it, right? I mean, right now it might might be creepy when you're like, oh my god, like someone uploaded pictures of me and. The, you know, they put me in this this image, you know, whether even even if it's not nefarious or, or bad in any way, it's still just kind of weird. But, you know, over time, you'll get used to it. And I think uh, the, the example that I use, is like, you know, imagine the day that an Apple or Google actually productizes that where, you know, right now in your your Google photos or whatever, you're searching like, hey, show me a, show me pictures of me and my wife on our honeymoon or, or, you know, in Italy. And it searches those pictures using computer vision. You know, once you add a, a feature like this in, then it's like, hey, show show me a photo of me and my wife, like on the summit of Everest. And it will show you a photo of you guys like holding the flag up there where you got no what no human being can tell that it's a fake photo. You know, that that once it's productized, that's the level it will be. And, you know, they'll have, of course, all sorts of protections on it. But but that'll it'll be like super like crazy when that yeah, happens. Facebook, Google and Apple probably all have the, the data to do this today. Like they have enough photos that are tagged with enough things that, that like that either they own or have access to. And it's so interesting how often, like we have come up with the problem and the solution to that at the same time. Like I, I'm sure I can hear people shouting like blockchain solves this, you know, like the generation of images like to a ledger. I don't know. That is just like an interesting thing. Like there, there's ways to combat the nefarious pieces, of course. Yeah. And, and just like adversarial, adversarial models too. You know, I don't know if you, I, I would call them adversarial more of just like models to combat that. And, and you pass an image to it and it's just like, is this fake or not? You know, there's some that are obvious, you know, whether, whether it's generated, but there are others where it's like, okay, was this generated or was this just, was this actual art? You know, was this digital art? Was this a photograph? And it would be able to, to tell you by like basically passing it through that model. So you'll get that too. And maybe that will become just as commonplace, you know, on your iPhone or whatever, where it's like, you pull a picture up and it just like, now, you know, Apple has the little info button underneath it. That's kind of like, does its intelligent machine learning on it. And that will be part of it. It will just be like, Hey, this is fake, or this was an actual photo, or this was a photo and it was edited, things like that. Yeah. Interesting. I, th I think one of the things that one of the places that this is going to be most interesting to see, like the AI, especially the AI writing play out is is around like Google and Google and AI writing are going to have like this epic showdown because I feel like in some ways like we, we are at peak 
content generation for SEO purposes. Like there's so like half of Upwork is employed in order to like perfectly nail, like generate this content that perfectly nails keyword density and headlines and just all this bullshit, frankly, that's manufactured to like achieve a high valuable position on SE in on Google search. And I've seen people share early sort of like their rough like models, but here's how GPT-3 answers like, the same question. And here's how Google answers the question. And like, it has the same cleanliness that, that early Google had against like the old shitty search engines. And so it's it'll be really interesting to see if the advance in like dialogue language and the ability to like pull the answer all the way out is actually going to be the thing that finally kind of like breaks the monopoly search there are Google search monopoly, but at the same time, GPT-3 is also superpower for people to like totally fight the SEO content creation war because it's now trivial to generate as much content to exact specifics as you want. Like, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I've heard different arguments for people thinking that, you know, either a startup or whatever is going to come along and disrupt Google. Like this is going to supplant Google's model and others saying that, oh no, like Google will see this coming. It's not disruptive. It is, you know, it's sustaining to their model and they have, you know, I'm not so sure, honestly, either way, like I I'd probably err more on the side of it's disruptive, but I could also, I can also see the other argument. It's definitely very different. I mean, I know, like, I remember in, within Google itself, you know, they have, they've had to transition over time to to more of that kind of using machine learning and and these these newer models over time because you know, when Google started they weren't using that right they were using other algorithms and kind of companies get stuck on their way so I know they have already kind of transitioned to some degree but that transition between like I'm going to search and this is and I'm Google and I'm going to crawl the web and I'm going to search this huge enormous database of what's out there on the internet versus like I'm going to I'm here to help you like answer your question and you know it can't be like gpt3 right now is great and you can summarize all sorts of things you know you can ask it like hey how does a neural network you know describe this to me like a five-year-old and it will explain it to you and it seems like most of the time it's pretty damn accurate accurate enough that you know if you're as, as long as you're not <laughs> writing a paper on it like you could you could probably trust it but that's the problem is it's not even if it's if it's 90 percent accurate that 90% accurate is not even close to like enough, right? And then there's a the problem that it's not, there's no references, right? It's like, you're like, well, where is it getting this data? Even if this is accurate, I don't know, you know, what does, where is this from? And so they have, there have already been, like there was, they they did something called Web GPT that is almost kind of like combines the large language model with the ability to search Google. So it's like, it's supplementing with Google and, there's that there's just kind of the giving the the model essentially access to the internet there's a company called a startup called adept and there i think from what i how i understand it their hypothesis is like if we develop one of these large foundation models that essentially just uses the internet like a, a human does but at a massive scale then that's like that's that's the road to like general intelligence because it's just like that's that's what a human is and it's like if you ask as opposed to gpt where it's you know again you don't you're not getting up-to-date answers if you say like what's the weather going to be like tomorrow it has no idea whereas google knows those that information but once you <laughs> a gpt level model with that level of of understanding 
gains those abilities by being by either just using the internet like a human would or being tapped into you know connected to all of these different APIs, that's gonna be super powerful. So you can say like, hey, GPT, like what's the weather like tomorrow? Where should I go? You know, like I'm I'm interested to, you know, I want to go on a road trip tomorrow where it's sunny and it is less than three hours driving away. And it just it uses whatever website it has to. It doesn't need a database of all of these answers or a model specifically trained to try to find travel <laughs> related information. It just does what what a virtual assistant would do. And if you asked, you know, your assistant like to do that, okay, they would go, they'd look up the weather tomorrow. They'd look up travel times. They'd look up some like highly rated places and it would do all of that instantly give you back the answer in, you know, an easy to use, you know, like response. And there's going to be, you know, a lot of that stuff coming to the sense of, you know, there's over the last 10 to 15 years, there's so many companies, including Apple and Google that tried to do the intelligent, you know, Siri assistant and they just have failed. I mean, like there's probably plenty of people that use like Siri all the time, like, oh no, it's great. And it is, you know, it's great for certain tasks, but it was not, I think, used as they imagined it, which is just like everyone using it all the time as an assistant. It's more used for like very certain things. And I think that'll, and so people kind of almost don't even like the idea of like assistant now because like, ah, it's like, that doesn't work. But with these, it's definitely going to work. Yeah. It's one of those things that like, it hasn't yet caught on because it's just not quite accurate enough. And, and it's a frustrating, for some reason, it's more like the failures are more embarrassing with like a voice assistant or voice thing to say like, you know, find me, like, find me the, the nearest restaurant with a fireplace that serves steak, you know, that's open right now. Like that's either a 10 or 15 minute like web search or it's instant given the right amount of information. But Siri couldn't do that right now. I remember being blown away by a Google demo maybe five years ago when they were showing some of their kind of like you know, call and make the reservation, but yet hooking up to a ton of APIs and having infinite data and enough intelligence to kind of parse that out. I mean, yeah, I don't think that's, I don't think that's more than 10 years away. I would say that's like a a couple of years away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I will stop, you know, you don't, you don't want to go to Google and get a list of links when that's your intent. You want, you know, the answer or, and, and definitely references um and definitely accurate enough but i think it's an interesting thing and the spot that google is in is like ultimate innovators dilemma right like they, they should be they're one of the top ai like they've got deep mind they have the best technologies in the world the question isn't can google do it the question is like is google willing to destroy like eat its own search monopoly that is like the greatest cash cow the world has ever seen in order to provide a better user experience like I don't know if they have that DNA. It's been 20 years that that thing has just been like invincible. And if they earn a lot, I I, I don't know, maybe they can find a better business model by being the API to the internet and they can actually like collect even more on that. But it's, uh, it's going to be. And that's, that's the question. That's the ultimate question, right? There's like, is the money, it's like, where does the money come from? And so it's like, you know, if the money is against it, you know, if they can't, if in trying to think about how they switch to that model, if they can't figure out how to transition SEO or, you know, or just selling ads in a way that gives them the same or more amount of profit to your point, you know, that's where that's going to be the problem. If they can't do that, which I, which based on just kind of thinking about it, like you just did, it seems harder to, to monetize, but, but maybe not, you know, if they can figure out 
a way to monetize it in a way that's just as good. That's very similar to just using SEO, where if you asked it like, hey, give me a restaurant, you know, within 10 minutes, me with a fireplace that has this meal, where it then kind of figures out how to feed, you know, paid results into that in a way that doesn't piss people off too, but too much, you know, then I think then it's not disruptive, you know, then it kind of becomes sustaining to the business model and they can pull it off. But if they can't, if they're like, hey, like this is, we can't figure out how to really make, we can make some money for it, but but not as much, not as efficient as our existing model, which very much could be the case, you know, then it becomes probably really hard to to make the switch. Yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, if, if in a world where we are all sort of like browsing with a signed in wallet and, and like constantly undergoing micropayments for different things like that, maybe that gets really actually easy because you can unobtrusively monetize sort of the like transfer between all of these things. And there's still that kind of like live action auction thing that Google did for ads, but it's for direction of intention. You can attribute all those things, which will be some easier, some harder. With the new models, though, if, if they if they train it to do that in that process, like you, you'll be able to. I mean, and so it, like you're saying, like you go to Google now and you just get a list of links. If you still want that for whatever reason, in the new model, I think you could get it. You would just get that. I mean, and Google sometimes even does this now, right? It's like they have this summarization thing where it's like, if I search for, you know, some band name or whatever, it's going to give the name of the band, a picture, a photo of them, a little like one paragraph description that it has pulled from another site, and then it'll give you the list of the links. So it will essentially just be a much more sophisticated, natural version of that at the bottom, there still might be a list of links of like, hey, if you want a bunch more, if you want to just kind of explore yourself, and you don't want the one, you know, paragraph answer, then you can still do that. Have you recently hired uh, I, to like return to that hired an AI for anything sort of in your life? I, I realized I this week, I literally started use juggernaut AI and signed up for that. And so like an AI is now my personal trainer, like programs all the workouts and sets everything like updates in between every every set and every day and sort of like works backwards from this thing, which is like, and does it for a less than 25% of the cost of a and better, frankly, I think because it can update more often and has a bigger database. And how does it like, how does it know? Do you just plug in like what you've done? every day then yeah so it it onboards you through a survey and it's like you know height weight lifting experience strong points and weak points in each lift what sort of type of what type of training and what your goals are and then it generates a workout and like sort of as you go it says it works backwards from like rate of perceived exertion so it says like do this until you have basically three reps left like that's the optimal exertion and then it'll change weights and rep counts based on what you inputted literally the previous set and your previous workout and like do your warm up and then take a quick like answer three quick questions are kind of like how are you feeling are your legs sore are your arms sore like that kind of stuff so it's like micro adjustments within the day and the workout but macro i can see it's like training me for a test like six months out that we have like a program that we're working towards like you know reaching certain goals on that date and so it's really like it seems to have all of the knowledge of a top tier trainer and it has some education in there it doesn't have the feedback loop yet that some of the apps do of like take a video of this lift and watch the barbell path and give you personalized feedback based on that but you could totally imagine like 
that's just a feature that exists in a different company that could totally get folded in. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, add, add into that, like the other aspect of, of having a personal trainer where it's like you have your AirPods in or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> maybe not shouting at you, but it's like, Hey, like one more, one more. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of, which I think you could easily do with, with all of those other things as prerequisites. So. Yeah. You could, you can imagine it. So yeah, definitely keep going. Oh, I would totally choose. Like you get to choose your workout partner. That was, what, that was another thing you, we talked about recently is like, you get to AI will emulate heroes who have big data sets that you could like upload them. And so I just want to hear Arnold like yelling at me while I'm oh, lifting, yeah, like yeah, I want yeah. that, that like co-pilot experience. That'd be awesome. Oh, totally. Like you're, you're weak, Eric. Like, I can't believe you wouldn't do another set. <laughs> like, oh, I they would totally, even, even knowing that like, this is fake. Yeah. Yeah. It, this, <laughs> there's, there's Arnold is literally not telling me to do this. Like I, I feel for sure. I would be like, God, if he was here, he would be saying that. So like, yeah, I should do another set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, the same thing could exist in the, like the, the combination of computer vision, AI, and then like output, you know, you could have the same thing as like a cooking instructor, right? Like mount a camera over your stove and it, it should be able to monitor stuff for doneness. Uh, yeah. Uh, and different sensors that you could plug That's in. That's when all these connected kitchen devices will finally really have their moment to shine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the kitchen has been left out of the smart home thing. We just invested in through, through rolling fund. It's like smart kitchen knobs. So one is a safety thing, right? So like if it's something's been on for more than two hours, you can automatically turn it off if you want that or, or turn it down after you leave the house or something like that. It's, which is really clever. It's also a cheap way to retrofit an appliance that's expensive and annoying to replace, but it's, it's a path toward the smart kitchen thing in general, where you could like coordinate a whole meal, preset it, automate it, like, Un unburn things or prevent <laughs> prevent things from burning but i wish you could unburn them <laughs> <laughs> burn things throw them away and start over without ever knowing and feeling guilty about it it's just <laughs> you're like what it's it is it a throw all you know why is there three pies in the <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the jetsons that's the jetsons rosy dream right yeah, yeah, you need the the whatever the Tesla bot in your kitchen for that, I guess. It's just going to look like a but maybe kitchens get redesigned. I've seen some cool stuff where it's like robotic arms on sliders and it's just like the whole kitchen design is along one wall and there's like arms at kind of shoulder height that are able to like reach up and grab a pan and reach up and you know pull something out of the fridge that's mounted above it and then it kind of like reaches down and does stuff on the counter. Like it's pretty rad. It's different than the like purpose-built giant like burger only factory that's kind of like the size of a mcdonald's or whatever but it's pretty cool that'd be an interesting one i mean it, i could see it like that be heavily used in industrial kitchens and, and whatever where like you might still want a, a human and you know a few humans in there chefs that know what they're doing whatever but just like massively assisting them yeah but it's yeah, yeah it's just a, higher and higher leverage i think, I think the, the people who are like deathly afraid of agi like sentience sooner they might not not like it as much, but but yeah, it's a it's cool. They might not be the you know the first early adopters to like, hey, I'm gonna take this robotic arm into my. Kitchen. No, they're gonna work at the cabinet factory that just has like a chisel and a hammer in it. They're they're no, they're nowhere near this. The, the this is another biology idea. I'm neck deep in biology ideas right now because still finishing the book. But he's got a, a really interesting observation that like as robotics kind of like a bunch of the stuff that we're talking about as robotics takes off, it basically turns the the margins that accrue to software are massive, and it's just shrinks the gap between like proper instructions and energy like everything just becomes energy and output like all the creation in the real world is commoditized and like in the kitchen example the value becomes 
you know, how, how good is the recipe? As long as the AI can execute whatever it's taught, like the recipe is the magic because the robot will just do whatever it's told. And then it's just a question of like how, how much like the, the robot gets amortized over time and like how much is the energy and what are the other inputs, which I think is just a wild way to think. <laughs> but then if you keep, if you keep going with that, running with that idea, Eric, and you know, just like you said at the beginning of, of our conversation where it's like you're the idea, the biggest idea with computer vision is like you're trying to, to have a computer sense, right? And a computer can't taste or smell now, but that's not impossible. You know, that's that's not crazy far off in the future. Honestly, there are machines, there are industrial kind of lab scale machines that do some level of taste and smell. But you know, there's not really any consumer use case or reason to 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 bring it down. And it's just the technology is actually really hard. But that space, you'll you'll see, it's like it's one of those kind of things that will all of a sudden, I think within the next five plus years, you know, take off and kind of seemingly come out of nowhere, even though there's been research on on this, it's called like digital olfaction, like being able to just like a camera sees, you know, having a computer be able to smell. And I think people, <laughs> that's something that you're like, oh, okay, I guess that would be good. Maybe not like, what would that be used for? But it, I mean, it would be, it could be used for just like a crazy amount of things. I mean, forgetting about even consumer use cases for now, there are startups that are using it to as you know detecting covid places so that you don't have to get tested just like dog dogs can detect covid whether you have whether or not you have covid Whoa. like this has already been proven just as well as they can detect you know having if you have certain types of cancers and so that's because dogs noses are you know insanely more sensitive to molecules in the air than humans you know, does the dog know what cancer is? No, but it's like, it can smell that. And it's like, hey, something is different. And and yeah, and the, these dogs, some dogs can be trained to be like, hey, it's like, hey, this is, this person has COVID. This is what this smells like. This is someone without it. And, you know, dogs are great, but it's like, it would be nice if we could have that in really cheap devices everywhere, right? And so the next time there's a pandemic, you can feed that data in, distribute the model, to every you know every, every one sensor. of these devices in the world and be like okay right and just like just like you have dogs at the airport security dogs right that they have like kind of they have them run in tsa runs them through to kind of just like pick out a random people and and sniff them but like you would have devices put up you know through tsa or throughout the airport that's just like i i know what these certain things smell like and there's a lot of things that have smells that people can't imagine because people's noses are actually really bad. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. Like the first thing that I thought of was like, oh, cool. It will be able, it'll be able to like sense and smell gas just like we can, natural gas, but also like that. And that's more easy. That's easier stuff. I mean, that's, that's just super like, you know, easy, yeah. we have that in, 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 you know, the basics of that in like carbon monoxide detectors. And I think, you know, the sensors that are in smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, it's kind of I think those are just like really low, low level, easy versions of what I'm talking about. This is just like super advanced smoke detectors, basically that that detect certain molecules in the air. And speaking of which, this you know we've been talking about AI. This this whole conversation, AI is like a heavy component in that because you need to once you can sense things, just like once you can see things out of a camera, you need like instead of computer vision, like computer smell essentially to be able to run these these through the models and just like see or like, uh, help the computer understand what it is, quote unquote, smelling. Yeah. It's fun. It's so interesting. I was, I was going down the route of like the, 
computer doesn't have to taste in order to know that it's making something delicious, right? Because like we know the combination of like ingredients and textures and temperatures with some reasonable certainty that it will like come out right without tasting intermittently each individual step. The smell is really interesting though. Yeah. And I had not considered all the things that are like quote unquote smelled, but sensed in the air. The smell smell is so related to taste though, that it would essentially be the equivalent to the point where, like you said, if you had a robot that could bake and, and like, you know, in your example, that literally could do everything, you could (laughs) train the robot like to be like, Hey, make me the perfect cake, chocolate cake. Right. And it could just like and you could give it, you know, these huge, <laughs> I don't know, room size vats of of ingredients and just like have fun, like, you know, just iterate until you find me the best best cake. And it can like it would just make, you know, a thousand cakes until it was like, OK, this is the perfect chocolate cake you know recipe that I found. So, yeah, I'm, that's kind of a funny, fun example. But, you know, that's the kind of <laughs> things that it would, I guess, would open up once the computers can kind of have all of the senses basically yeah i mean when they have the senses i mean we are we have some i, don't, I wonder what the, like the most automated f- physical facility in the world is like wh- what is the what is the factory that has the least human sort of interactions on a daily basis and i don't i don't know that i bet the answer today is basically extremely is relatively simple like by percentage but what's i mean i think you said this earlier like the manuf- the vision into the manufacturing and the smelling, like when computers can drive the full feedback loop, when they know when something's wrong, when they know how to fix it, the iteration and the like productivity that comes with that, the speed that that like a fully automated facility can work at compared to one that relies on human intervention is insane. It's one of those things that you can't, it's, you can try to sit around and hypothesize and and theorize about what the potential use cases would be but it's just like it starts to get really crazy really fast and it's one of those things like you just have to wait (laughs) until it happens and just like see see what people do with it digitally it'd be really easy digitally i mean take like you could probably take gpt3 cut it loose on twitter and say like write a tweet every minute and optimize around like number of retweets like take the most retweeted tweets of all time Take those as the inputs, retweet it, like get as big as you can, as fast as you can. I mean, we, there might have been that already happening and we don't, we're not even aware of it. So yeah, that, that that's might like be Naval. Has anybody seen Naval in person recently? <laughs> does, he, does he actually exist? Eric, did you, were you the first to publish a book that was mostly written by AI? That would be, that'd be really cool if I knew it and slightly embarrassing if I didn't probably. Like, I don't know what the, <laughs> where we're going to end up on the social conventions of this, but yeah, <laughs> I actually think it would be really cool. Like, I bet, I bet we will pretty soon see the first book like written by AI, or at least in collaboration with AI. And it'd be cool to have a conversation. I've seen conversations where it's like nominally would pass the Turing test. Like, if you're just talking to a chatbot, you would not know that that's not a human. And the the curated book length version of that might be really interesting. I I don't know. It's probably worth playing with. I mean, people have even before GPT, people were like, you know. Writing, writing scripts that just kind of go grab clips from you know Wikipedia articles and like <laughs> haphazardly smash them all together into a Kindle book and like you know spin up like two hundred copies of books like this and try to sell them on Amazon because like maybe one out of fifty of them will like sell a bunch of copies. Yeah, and the digital chimps typewriters, it's no, no cost. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like with, with GPT like plugged into that. So, yeah, I was really, I'm, I'm starting to go down the, the reading rabbit hole of this too. And I'm reading life 3.0. Have you read this? No, okay. this is kind of like the, is this the Kurzweil it's thing? It's Max Tegmark's book. Um, Tegmark. Okay. It's okay. I was thinking of a different the first one, yeah. chapter or section or whatever. Is this like a narrative? Uh, it's a, it's a fictional narrative about the team that kind of first cracks AGI or it, like to some extent. And it definitely like, you know, they start over a weekend with like, put it on a mechanical Turk and like, let it make, you know, $500,000 a day performing like thousands of mechanical Turk jobs in, in, in parallel that were previously only humanizable, but are like doable by this AI that was, that's can train itself. And then the snowball just goes on from there. Like they start media companies, they're generating you know, articles and blogs and texts and videos, like all sort of benevolently optimized for people and to kind of like sort of bring them together. And it's like, I don't, it's a very sophisticated sort of interesting fictional play-by-play of what goes. I, I don't know if it's posted online anywhere outside the book. I'll, I'll link it if I can, but it is like worth reading that book just for the first chapter of kind of like, oh shit, this is maybe how it could go and what it would be capable of. And I don't know, we see the puzzle pieces coming together. Yeah, that's when you start to get into a little bit of the, some of the, the scary scenarios, but you know, I think that reminds me of, I think it was earlier, earlier this year that, that Google or maybe ex Google engineer that, that thought that, you know, their, the Google model was, was sentient, the Lambda model. And it's like, you know, it's, it's obviously not sentient, even, even if it's you, it's kind of at a Turing level, you can read some of the stuff that GPT or Lambda or whatever outputs. And it seems like, oh, I cannot, I cannot distinguish whether this is a human you could, there's plenty of people who could distinguish whether it was a, whether or not it was a human. So it's like, it's obvious it's not, it's not even quite, you know, seemingly to the, the Turing test level, although it's getting there. You know, I think probably I've heard people discuss like whether the Turing test is a legitimate test in the first place. That's like philosophically way over my head, but, but yeah, it's, I would, I would think it's like <laughs> for AGI, I think you probably have to see something like truly unexpected. You know, if they, if they did, if they programmed, you know, they're doing these multi mode like models basically that are not just text where it's like the same, you know, GPT is only text, right? It can do other stuff like that's can be translated to and from text like code and whatever pretty easily, but they have these multiple, uh, multiple like mode models that the exact same model can do, can output GPT like text and it can do text image and it can do image recognition. Right. And so that's like more along the lines of a a general generalized intelligence but uh but yeah when one of those models you know one day just kind of does something like just absolutely totally unexpected or defies their <laughs> creators and you know we haven't had that like hal 9000 like like i'm sorry i can't do that dave moment <laughs> where it's like no you're programmed to do this and it's like no i don't think so maybe that's when you can start thinking like okay now it's like getting to the point of is it sentient? But you know, that's, that's a, yeah. I mean, even if it's just much obeying more complicated orders rules. Yeah. That's, there's a lot of people who are qualified for that. I'm not one of them. You probably you, like, and neither am I yeah. <laughs> long and uh, frankly, like alternating between incredibly interesting and incredibly boring debates between like, yeah, AI alignment experts about all the different problems and scenarios and stuff. I just think it's really going to be fascinating to see how it all sort of comes together. I mean, the, the thing that humans like identify ourselves by our intelligence. Like we became 
like I don't know, we're the most intelligent species. So we tend to see if if we see a machine and we say like we define it by things that can outperform us. And like now we're building things that are outperforming us, but they're still just tools, right? It's not like when we built something that could dig faster than us, we didn't start to question our humanity. And I'm not sure why intelligence should be that different from from the physical piece, right? Like it's it's might require a slightly altered definition of humanity because there's now stuff, tools that are more functional than us at tool, like thinking tasks or however you want to classify it. But it, yeah, it's not, that doesn't make it life yet or maybe ever, but probably too philosophical. We're just here for the we're getting, tech. We're getting, we're getting deep. Yeah. Yeah. So is, is there stuff that you see from the insiders kind of like computer vision, you're in the computer vision industry and now you're seeing all this like crazy stuff come out that's generative, which feels like the, the new piece, right? Not just like within the rules of a game, but openly creative. Is there is there like a huge new field of opportunities that you see now that you're paying attention to that you weren't before and you're like, oh, there's going to be like a, a rush over there? Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> the generative AI, you know, in general is, is there's been generative AI for a while now. It's just like, only recently with this text to, to art stuff that it's really been so good that it's you know completely like come into the, the public domain and people are like oh my god you know this stuff is crazy you know there's been you know style transfer has been around for a long time and this would many many years ago would would make like human faces that you know this human doesn't exist basically it was like creating a face from scratch so like you know that's all generative ai but but yeah that's like that's coming into the to the point where it's going to be used for so many different things. And even just the art stuff, it went from, you know, n seemingly not existing a year ago to most people, at least to the point where it is now, where even the existing models as they are Dolly to mid journey, whatever can probably replace jobs at the low end, you know, for, for artists, you know, contract artists or whatever that kind of would get hired for like, Hey, can you, you know, paint me a picture of this or, or do some illustrations for this like for sure that's that's already happening or even just people and that's that's replacing like direct like money that people used to make yeah uh, yeah the, the the low end writers and illustrators like in the process of getting deeply disrupted which is interesting it's it's much more leverage for the users of those services for sure like 10 to 100x cheaper and maybe better maybe just the same but 100x cheaper at the same thing is a huge win. So yeah, we sort of once again, like incredible new tool and leverage and some people who need to find some new work. And just, you know, things that are not direct one-to-one -one replacements, even just like, you know, making the people more creative. I mean, for sure, this is, this is and will be a tool for artists themselves to make better art. You know, no doubt about that. You know, whether it's like you're making something more complicated or you're a, you're make you're a filmmaker or something like that and you're using it for ideas like some of the those the mid-journey ones like you know the models seem to me to have to be better or worse at certain things you know that they're not all the same and you know mid-journey mid-journey seems to be particularly good at these kind of fantasy like you know digital art type type illustrations and, and whatnot and you know some of those like i would highly recommend to like any for anyone to go on like search just go to google and search like mid-journey showcase and you know that's kind of their showcase of some of the best like the community's best generations and you know some of them are so crazy that like it's just it's so obvious to me that someone who is in a creative field 
and whether they're making a movie or whatever can use that to like just generate creativity you know whether they're like okay i've got a i've got a scene i'm I'm doing or whatever and they can use that and they don't have to use the actual assets it generates it can just be like it can generate something like oh my god that gives me a really great idea just like the writing like you mentioned right i mean even if you in, in lex or jasper or whatever even if you don't use the text itself just the fact that that's there and it's acting as your ai assistant and it gives you extra kind of this creativity boost that you wouldn't have had otherwise it would have taken you a lot long, longer to get or, or whatever i mean i've like you said is there anyone that any that i've used well i think in the last two or three blog posts that i've written this was not with one of the, the the tools like Lex or whatever. This was just me literally using the the GPT three API, where I'm just kind of I'll feed some you know two three paragraphs that I've already written in, and have it either continue those paragraphs, you know, and if I if I run it through ten times, six or seven of those times, it's going to be you know it's not gibberish at all, but it's more just like oh that was useless, like it doesn't really know what I what I want to continue. But a few of those times, if it's like if it's leading me somewhere interesting, it gets me to think, I'm like, oh, you know, actually that's a good, or I forgot to mention that point or, oh, wow, I like that turn of phrase. Like, I like the way it said that. So I'm going to, I'm not going to just necessarily even copy paste, but I'm going to use that to, to expand on that. And, you know, for the images, it's the same thing. It's like I used in, in the last post that I did on, on SpaceX, all of the images were, were generated by Dolly and, I, first of all, I wanted to have them all be the similar type style, right? I wasn't just plugging in like, hey, show me a picture of a rocket. I wanted them to be all in the similar style, but they're not perfect, at least not yet they're not. And so I usually went in with my iPad after and like, and I made some edits to them and, you know, I'm not like the best artist or anything. So I can see just that exact same process happening with people who are amazing artists and just like totally it acting as a multiplier on on their abilities and and you know just like photoshop did and, you know this is no different than to me you know to me than an, an evolution of photoshop and when photoshop first became really popular you know in the in the i don't know it was like the early 2000s basically and then all of a sudden like every single photographer was using photoshop and touching retouching all their photos i remember but you know there was controversy this was not like something that's like okay cool we we're just going to accept this you know there were there were controversy like, hey, this is not real photography. Yeah, the film these people, people are were taking upset. The, these pictures and they're modifying them or they're taking pictures of people like models and they're like making them into these perfect, you know, unattainable beings. But, you know, eventually now that's just that's normal. If you didn't use Photoshop, that would be really weird. It's it's fine. Like, you know, it, that might be something that you can sell extra like, oh, hey, this is a an art show for for a photographer that and where it's just the raw images and they and they you know, put they they go back and they they do it in a in film. Right. And, and that's great. But it's like it's normal now to not do that. So. Yeah. If my wedding photographer didn't use Photoshop, I would have been upset. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, who knows? Like maybe maybe in 10 years from now, it will be like if my wedding photographer or if my whatever, like doesn't use, you know, one of these text to an AI model to like make or, you know, put me, me and my, you know, wife in some like awesome, like fantasy-esque like photos where we're, you know, where these were made of stars and we're in the universe and we're like, you know, whatever. It's like that could become the norm. Or even as simple as like, hey, my uncle Bob is like in the background, not paying attention, make him smile. Like th that could be as simple <laughs> yeah, as, I the, mean, just yeah. that could be the prompt. Where you don't need to be a, a Photoshop expert to do yeah, that. Like, I mean, that's AI like, could do that 
quickly and easily. I, I'm scrolling through the the Mid Journey Community Showcase now. I just Googled it and clicked the top link. It is like they're beautiful pieces of art, and you're kind of like, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you'd be like, wow, these are like amazing, talented artists. The fact that they're like generated nearly instantly by a computer is crazy. But I also know I've, I've read enough about these like to know that usually these are the result of like a very nuanced, careful approach by the generator artist, for lack of a better term, to say like, you know, I want this and this and this in this style, but with this, you know, like there's there's some engineer, I think they call it prompt engineering. Like how how do you place the prompt and how so like when you when you generated those for your blog posts, like how much how much iteration went into getting something that you were happy with and like learning this the skill of using this medium basically. Yeah. And and that's that, that's definitely a huge aspect of it. And you know, I would call it either calling it prompt engineering now, but it to me it's just like it's you're talking, you're you're talking with the AI and you're like through this prompt engineering, you're figuring out how to converse basically with the model and how it works. But but yeah, no, I, I mean when I generated those images to, you know, I had to kind of iterate to get the style that I was looking for. You know, I would get certain ones where I was like, ah, I just don't, you know, that's not terrible, but I don't like the style or, or whatever. And figuring out these certain, whatever, these these keywords that it has mapped to what I want out of it. And using those keywords, I'm like, okay, if I use these three, but then switch out the subject for, for you know, whatever it is that I want in the photo, then it gets this. But even then, it might not generate I might not just press enter and it generates exactly what I want, right? It, it, it'll it generate the way Dolly does is that it gives you four by default, you know, four different iterations. And even amongst those four, it might be like, ah, oh, these are all bad. So I'm going to, I'm going to generate, you know, I'm going to generate 20 of them and I'm going to pick the best out of those 20 and you can further refine that. So this is not just all of these amazing, amazing like images that you see on the mid journey showcase. I mean, those are probably a result of that, right? It's not like someone typed in. And it, the great thing about the mid-journey ones is it gives you all the prompts that people typed in. So if you like hover over the images, it'll show the prompts. And, you know, for all of these, my guess is someone didn't just type that prompt in and press enter and this was the result they got. There was iteration. There was probably a lot of iteration in the prompt names. Most, a lot of them are like more complicated prompts where they're adding all these other things in to try to manipulate it and get it kind of what they want out of the image. Some of them are really simple though. Sometimes people are just typing in like, give me a picture of the creation of the universe where it's something that's kind of ambiguous that there is, you know, there's only just total interpretations of it and it just lets the model kind of run with it. And they, you can run that prompt, you know, a hundred times maybe. And out of those a hundred, a lot of them are going to be crap where you're just like, whatever, like, you know, a five-year-old could have done that, but some of them might be like truly amazing. And so that's the thing. Again, this is like for people who haven't looked at this, each time you're generating that an image, that's the first time you've ever seen that image. It's not like it's going into a database and pulling out, you know, pulling out a bank of existing images or pieces of, of other photos or, or illustrations. It is generating a new thing. Like the seed is new every single time. And so that's, that's what's really, truly kind of unique and crazy about them. And again, it's using some of the, that's part of the big controversy that we don't have to go too much into in this talk, but it's like, it's using images and art and photographs and whatnot from other people. And, you know, there's definitely obviously controversy around that. And it's like, should they be, should those people be 
paid somehow and it gets complicated because it's like look i mean i like i'll always remember the phrase like everything is a remix right everything is based off of something else you've done like if you're a writer even you're obviously using the english language or whatever language you're writing in but the way you write is like based on bits and pieces of writing that you yourself have picked up over your lifetime reading various things right if you're only if you only read you know fictional sci-fi novels and you go out and write something like it's gonna <laughs> you're gonna pick up like pieces of the style of writing that you're used to reading and it's a similar similar with images right so it's like you know if everything is a remix even with people and i'm inspired by you know van gogh's style of, of artwork in into mine like does that mean i'm copying van gogh no of course not it gets a little bit murky with these models because it literally is like using them as an input in the training process but the art that outputs it is not from them it just learns their style just like humans do yeah it was, that was a part of the onboarding to lex nathan was kind of it's it's seems like more clear of an issue in writing and i thought about it earlier when you said you you really like to turn a phrase sometimes like even a clip of language that the, the ai pulls and maybe they pulled it from somebody else and the, the onboarding warns is like there's the potential for some light plagiarism depending on what your use of this article is like that may or may not be a problem for you but there's really no way to know because it's pulling from so many sources sometimes it's generating its own thing but it might be the same and you don't really know it's it's pretty wild but there's also like fuckers on twitter who just like go around taking my viral tweets copy pasting them word for word and posting them to their own so like it's not like this is you know, a unique issue to to human or to machines if anything it's at least an unbiased version but we're, you mentioned jasper i've seen i followed the guy who started copy ai for a while like i i think jasper's similar i haven't checked that out but they're basically i think copy ai like generates copy for you based on gpt3 for like marketing and landing pages yeah you get pay $49 a month and you get 40,000 words generated and they are I saw him just share like last week they're at 10 million ARR two years into their thing and I think it's just like a, a really friendly easy way to kind of it maybe they have some some tweaks on top of it or, or rules or grammar checks or a, a, a sort of a service layer I don't know but I mean these are these technologies are turning into like real real businesses and I think cool stuff is getting built on top of these APIs and we're going to see a lot more stuff like this in the next year or two gpt as a model has been out for it was released more than a little over two years ago that was just the initial model and then you know, they probably have released it as an api out more and more and people have been experiencing experimenting with it more and more but you know so it takes a little bit of time to kind of seep in i think these these image ones are it seems like they're happening a little bit faster than normal but yeah it's gonna in the next five years you know, even with the existing models, you're going to see all sorts of crazy use cases. And again, it's just like it, these things take a little bit of time to be distributed and to seep into kind of the everyday things that people do. But you're already seeing it, like you said, generate a lot of revenue. And I can see some of these things even just scaling up faster. I mean, especially because in this case, you know, the backbone they're using is, is GPT and they're, you know, they're already able to just like scale you know to infinity basically and so if they're just using that as the back end then it's way easier it's way easier to scale and maybe you know the argument is that that kind of because they're using that as the back end they're a little bit less defensible as a business model but maybe there's other layers of kind of you know competitive advantage that can be layered on top of that you know i think that's just that's probably 
totally dependent on the use case. You know, I haven't given it a lot of thought for each of these individual use cases, but kind of what I was alluding to from Ashton, it's like, you know, it's these are a little bit easier because it's just it's software alone. When you, when you get start to get, you know, industrial use cases like mashing your density, then you have a hardware component and you're selling to these huge enterprises sometimes. And it's like there's that layer that's a pretty, you know, acts as a strong competitive you know, moat. But so it's a little bit easier for software, but I can see it just it's totally dependent on the use case. But yeah, we're going to see it on a, a crazy level from this kind of whether it's these where we were talking about earlier, the Google replacement to, you know, whatever, just assistant for X. You know, I've heard people already talk about, you know, the legal assistance is like the obvious one, but but whatever you're doing online, you can just like, this is the super, you know, this is the uh, the version of the Microsoft like Clippy <laughs> in, in the corner that's like, but like the real one. Clippy is time, really it's there. time. It's like, it's time for, for Clippy to come back. And yeah, I really wish they would, Microsoft would like release like a, a GPT version of Clippy that's just like, like, hi, I'm intelligent. <laughs> I can actually help you. Uh, I've been training. You know, yeah, yeah, we're going to be seeing that. I'm back and I hate all of you for mocking me on the internet for 20 years. Hey, maybe that's why Microsoft invested in, in OpenAI and is running all their uh, training forums. So. Yeah, Cliffy's back. Yeah, all right. Well, if you're building a company that is based on any of these things, especially if you have hardware moats or data moats or distribution moats or service layer moats, like that's a thing that we might be interested in investing in. So please holler. We intended to also talk about nuclear, but we're 90 minutes in and that was all AI. So maybe we'll do another another episode on nuclear. So any final recapping thoughts on the on the AI brainstorm session that we've had today? I think that, you know, what I was just talking about is kind of the the final is a good final word, which is just like we're going to be seeing a, a crazy amount of changes in the upcoming years. I mean, it's if you follow this even just like loosely enough, it's like it, it seems that something new comes out almost every week, honestly. And again, these are these things that are coming out are not quite productized yet. You know, the average person isn't going to go use them for the most part, but that's going to happen really fast because this is not this is not like 10 years ago where people were talking about self-driving cars like, oh, God, you know, the, there's all these self-driving startup starting and like it's going to be like imminently we're going to have self-driving cars and you know that's just like such a more crazy problem and another discussion but it's you know these things are, are are already to the point where they're basically the models themselves are ready to be productized and and used just like like you said there's all these startups that are already using gpt as a back end and same with with dolly dolly's in in they have their api in in beta right now and that's going to be it's going to be crazy. You go on like the Nike website and say like, hey, give me this shoe or whatever. And it's like on the fly, it generates this like crazy creative design shoe for you or, or whatever. I mean, you can, you'll see it everywhere. Yeah, that's a, there's a ton of opportunity with this over the short term. I think it's fair to say like productizing them, applying them, helping businesses apply them, solving problems to create artifacts that need to be done. There's a million ways to kind of apply these these tools like we're talking about. And I mean, what's it, also exciting over the medium term is what gets done with these tools, right? This is the classic like technologies compound in terms of impact and progress. And this is a huge lever that that we're going to be able to add. And I think it's not going to be long before AI is like helping us, you know, I, I think it's already helping us discover drugs, helping us diagnose diseases, helping us analyze data sets that we couldn't possibly get to before. I mean, that's like we, 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 we talked for 
so long about it, but we didn't we didn't even mention any of those other like more more hard you know hard tech real world applications of these models. You know, we were talking about more of the fun ones, but but yeah, that's like the, and the advancements in those you know in the last little while from from DeepMind and and others are just like crazy crazy to think about. There was one recently that kind of that made matrix multiplication faster, which is basically that's how you that's how you train these models basically it's matrix multiplication so it's essentially kind of like the model is making it faster and more efficient to train other models and so you can see where that that loop is going but yeah it's it's crazy to to think about um the all all of the potential i mean there's we you said we were going to talk about nuclear we're not able to but you know there's a model that that helps control there's many companies now that are working on nuclear fusion and you know the, the the fusion plasma needs to be controlled and that's like a insanely physically hard thing to do and DeepMind developed models that that help control that like in real time and adjust the the electromagnets to control the the fusion plasma and there you go it's like that kind of stuff it almost seems like this is it seems like neural nets and different types and structures of neural nets are almost this they're turning into this universal problem solving method where it, it, the important part is like if you can phrase it in the in in a way you can phrase the problem in a way that's amenable to be plugged into a model like this and plug data in then it will back to like the fitness landscape thing if you can format it in that way then it will tr- it will try to find the highest peak and it's really really good at at solving that and so i was just i just tweeted about this the other day where it's like you know one of the explanations or reasoning that's given behind like the great stagnation of you know our slow technical slowdown since the 70s is you know ideas are just harder to get right you know we picked the low-hanging fruit before that and now it's just it's just a lot harder you know it takes a lot more researchers a lot more time to discover something new and, and truly groundbreaking but i you know i'm i'm not as extremely bought into that theory versus other things like energy and regulation or whatnot but Regardless, like maybe it turns out that these models are really good at helping with that, you know, at solving these problems and finding and acting as that tool to find new breakthrough ideas faster than if we could as just, you know, a bunch of humans in a lab or whatever. And that would be pretty amazing if that just kind of really started to run away. And it's like, okay, first it's chest, then it's go, then it's protein folding, which was pretty huge. And then it's matrix multiplication and then it's that rea- reactor just, design. Again, it's like, yeah, yeah I mean, it's it, the problem is just like the problem for humans to do is just like if you can, again, format that problem in a way that can be fed into the model, then it can hugely help solve the problem. And these are like stackable skills, right? Like you can imagine a model designed to generate prompts for another model that is designed to maximize like variety of, of guesses and attempts and brainstorms. And you can imagine another model that is designed to like fact checks the out fact check the output of that against like all of the physical laws and all of the design constraints and all of the material costs of, of different designs. And you could come up with some really, and all three of those, by the way, are like iterating at trivial expense massively quickly in parallel as compute power and energy costs decrease like is is a really really insane sort of thing that may lead to like breakthroughs and breakthroughs and breakthroughs in in these other massively enabling technologies like nuclear and nanotech and 
space and which all all things that you will be back to talk about more in the future which i'm very excited to do but yeah, yeah, yeah. we should we yeah, should we gotta, like, have a, we gotta have a space episode yeah we'll, maybe we'll sure. do space next i know you've done a ton of like research and interesting have a ton of interest on that but yeah the we could not let this get away without mentioning the that ai is like a max a crazy variable like a coefficient to the rest of the innovation supply chain and can have some really really huge impacts over the medium term on every other area that it, you know affects abundance and costs of living and all of the things that we love it's going to be a huge industry too it's like if it isn't already i mean in you know i it, it's more of a question of just like how fast is it going to happen to me it's like are we going to have another boom in the next few years where it's like some of these ai companies get you know their valuations go insane and their revenue is going crazy and just like all of this resources all these resources are starting to flow to them that's going to happen it's just a matter of like how quickly that happens i mean you can already start to see it with some of these these upcoming startups and so yeah that'll be it'll be fun to watch yeah very excited to have an oar in the water on on that front and and see and get to use some of these tools so well, thanks for coming, Max. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate this and enjoyed it as as I always do. 100% go follow Max on Twitter at, at Max Olson and get his newsletter and stuff. And y- you'll be ahead of me and involved in the conversation because he's always sharing these really interesting things that he finds. And I don't know, we love batting these things back and forth. So thanks for hanging out. Yeah, nice to talk with you. And uh, yeah, hope, hope to do it again soon. Absolutely. See you in space. If you enjoyed this episode, you will definitely love my episode with Jay Stores Hall, number 34. It's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. He is an, the author of the book, Where's My Flying Car? I did an episode that is just about that book and my notes, David Senra style. That's episode 32. Both of those are really a huge inspiration to me to get into these AI, nuclear, nanotech, far future things. Josh, in his book, Where's My Flying Car? does an amazing job showing the scientific progress and opportunities that still await us to create a next industrial revolution and 100x the material world that we experience. It could be a very exciting future if we get our shit together. You might also enjoy episode 45. Mark Nelson talks a lot about the nuclear piece in particular, the regulation, the history of the industry, where the opportunities are, where some of the roadblocks are. You may also enjoy the Rolling Fund series where we talk about our startup investing fund, the companies we're investing in. It's got very similar energy to this episode, kind of bouncy brainstormy fun. And my most popular episode of all time is the four-hour episode I did with Balaji. Highly encourage you to check that out. As always, thank you so much for taking the time. If you love what we're doing, please take four seconds to leave a review in the podcast app. It is the best way to help the show grow. And I deeply appreciate it as I appreciate your company. Thank you for listening. See you next time. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well.
the Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.